I want to ask you guys a question that I, I, I pray that you'll hear. Sometimes as we're getting settled into sermon mode, it's shuffle around. Oh, where's my Bible? Uh, think about some other things. But I want to give you an opportunity to collect your thoughts so that you can, you can hear these few opening questions. They're all the same question. I'm just going to ask them, ask the same question in a couple of ways. Here you go. What kind of comments would I have to tell you that Jesus said? Not my comments, but his. What kind of comments would I have to tell you that Jesus said for you to conclude on the spot right now that you should never listen to him again? What would lead you to conclude that if I faithfully recounted to you something Jesus said, that he is a demon-possessed madman? That's precisely the result, to quote God, of many who heard Jesus' teaching in today's passage. If you have a red-lettered Bible and it's already open to John 10, You'll notice that almost all of today's material are the words of the Lord Jesus. There are four verses out of verses 1 to 21 of chapter 10 that are not spoken by Jesus. All the rest of the words are his words. And as I mentioned, verse 19 says clearly, many wanted to cancel him for the things he taught in today's text. So here's my last question before we read that passage. How will you respond to what he said? I invite you to John chapter 10. I think it would help, especially if you have your Bibles open and secondarily if you have that handout to follow along. But we will be looking at the details of what are contained for us in verses 1 to 21. Hear the word of the living God. John 10 verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you. He who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice and calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep will follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to him. Verse 7, so Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. 
and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not, is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father, verse 19, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Let's ask God. Father, we ask that you would give us spiritual understanding to believe and receive what Jesus just said. That he is the door through whom your sheep may enter into your family. That Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. That we may know you as he knows you. That he took his life up again with his all authoritative power and dominion. Oh, cause us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that through believing we would have life in his name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you do have your hand out and care to follow along that way, there'll be 24 fill in the blanks. So we got some work to do. Let's go. Uh, the passage reveals to us two of the seven I am statements from the lips of the Lord Jesus in John's gospel. Perhaps you heard them as I read or prayed them. Jesus says in verses 7 and 9, I am the door, or the gate, your translation may say. And in verses 11 to 14, I am the good shepherd. So there's two of the seven I am statements from the lips of the Lord Jesus. I am the door, I am the good shepherd. There are five others in the Gospel of John. But this portion of John's Gospel, verses 1 to 21 of chapter 10, sorts itself out into four parts, and I've tried to lay that out on your handout. Verses 1 to 9, verse 10, verses 11 to 18, verses 19 to 21. Those are the four parts. The fourth part is the response. So the meat of the passage is the first three, and I think the meat of the meat is the third. So on your handout, we'll deal with the first part first, verses 1 to 9, and the heading there over verses 1 to 9 is Jesus is the door, or the gate. That's the first blank on your handout. There are two parts to verses 1 to 9. The first part tells us, verses 1 to 3, how the sheep enter, the sheep 
pen, the sheepfold. And the second part, verses 4 to 5, tells us, uh, pardon me, A is two differences between a shepherd and a thief, verses 1 to 5. In verses 1 to 9, Jesus wants us to know the difference between a shepherd and a thief who poses to be a shepherd. They both get into the sheepfold, but for very different reasons. And as I mentioned, verses 1 to 3, of the two differences between a shepherd and a thief, A, number one, first is how they enter the fold. Notice in verse 1. Jesus says, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs in some other way, he is a thief and a robber. So one difference between a shepherd and a thief is how they, how they enter. Verse 2 tells us positively, the one who enters by the gate, by the door, is a shepherd. So you can see the two different ways that People sought to enter the sheep pen. And just to give us a little bit of mind's eye of what Jesus' hearers would have heard and what Jesus himself had in his mind as he's using this metaphor of sheep and shepherd and thieves and sheepfold and sheep pen. Sheep were very, very common. Shepherding was a very common vocation in Jesus' day, and sheep were a plenty among the New Testament world in which Jesus lived. Some of you have been to places in the world where even today, sheep are kind of ubiquitous. They're just everywhere. Uh, I've been to a few countries in the world where our caravan of, of vehicles or the bus in which we were riding had to stop in the middle of a very busy, you know, six-lane wide road, both directions for, for the sheep and the shepherd to cross. I, I went to the top of Mount Carmel uh, in Israel where Elijah called fire down from heaven and there was a shepherd on the top of the mountain. I remember that most distinctly because I'm trying to have this, you know, sweet moment with the Lord and I'm reading, you know, Elijah, yeah, man, that's our God, fire on top of this mountain, prophets of Baal scattered everywhere and the, and the shepherd's cell phone rang and that's before the day of, you know, everybody having cell phones. I thought, okay, well, there you know, kind of puts in perspective, I'm in the 21st century. Um, but sheep, sheep in Jesus' day were just everywhere. Shepherds were everywhere. But unlike today, there were common sheepfolds, meaning you may have a flock of however many dozen sheep, and so may your friend, but in the evening, you would bring them to the common fold. And the shepherds who rented space in that fold for the evening would together stipend pay the gatekeeper who would sleep in the gate. So all the sheep were in the fold and the gatekeeper would sleep at the gate. And Jesus is saying, you can tell the difference between a shepherd and a thief by how they get into the fold. The thieves come over the wall, the shepherd goes through the gate. But the second difference is in verses 4 and 5. Number two, how they guide the sheep. A thief and a shepherd guide very, very differently. Verse four, when the shepherd puts forth all his own, notice this little phrase, it's so beautiful. I'd love to preach a whole sermon on it. He goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. He goes ahead of them. 
Well, again, some of us haven't seen with our own eyes the example of of what Jesus is saying that would have been so common to his hearers. Let me try to give you in your mind's eye a picture of it. Today, in our land and in our very efficient economy, sheep aren't roaming all over the place in the cities of the U.S. And wherever they are in our land, they're usually not being led by the shepherd being ahead of them. Rather, they're in a barbed wire fence and a sheepdog is herding them. So in our day, sheep are not led, they are driven. Do you see what Jesus says? When a shepherd, not a thief, puts forth his own. That means he goes to the fold, he brings them out, and he puts them forth into the pasture. He's not driving them with his shepherd's staff or with his sheepdog. He's ahead of them, leading them, which means Jesus is going to tell us later about himself being such a good, a kind, a sweet, and attractive, a winsome, a compelling, a magnetic shepherd, the kind of shepherd that any sheep would want to follow. He goes first into the territory so that we know when we follow him, it's safe for us to come as well. He doesn't call us to go a place that he himself doesn't go. So the two differences in verses 1 to 5 between a shepherd and a thief is how they enter and how they guide. But, but second, verses 6 to 9, under number 1, Jesus is the door. There are two ways to spot or identify the sheep. Which of the sheep in the big fold belong to the good shepherd? Which of them belong to some sinister people with illicit motives, and which of them belong to good shepherds? He tells us two ways to identify his sheep. The people were confused in verse 6 when Jesus spoke this figure of speech. They did not understand what those things were which he was saying to them. They were conversant with sheep and shepherds, They just didn't understand Jesus' metaphor. And D.A. Carson says in verses 7 to 9, when they didn't understand, he doesn't explain to them so much the metaphor as he expands upon it. So you can see he kind of switches metaphors in verses uh, 7 through 9. So, So what are two ways we can spot God's sheep in this big fold of the world of humanity? Who belongs to God? Well, thank you. Holy Spirit for inspiring John to help us know. Verse 8. This is your fourth fill in the blank for those who are giving up. You can spot God's sheep based on who they follow. Verse 8. You have your Bible open. It says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So when Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, he's not talking about the good guys. He's not talking about Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the prophets. He's not talking about the Old Testament faithful, all who came before me, all they wanted to do was hurt you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying all these pseudo-messiahs. If you've read the New Testament, you'll remember that there are times people refer to 
false saviors who had risen up, gained a little following, just like we experience in our world today. People, you know, rise up and say they're the Savior or the Messiah has come. That kind of stuff was happening in Jesus' day. And Jesus is saying those, those people who claimed to be the Messiah, they're just thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't hear them. So you can, dis, 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 you can discern who God's sheep are based on who they follow. Verse 8 says, God's sheep won't hear them. And then verses 7 and 9, another indicator of God's sheep is how they access, that's your fill in the blank, how they access his pasture. How do they get into God's green, Psalm 23, pastures beside the still waters? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 7 and 9, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So how do God's sheep access God's green pasture? They go through the narrow door of Christ. No other way. Jesus alone, and notice they go in and out and find pasture. He is the safe traverse for us in this fallen world. We live in and through Christ. In this portion of John 10, we're encountering, as I mentioned, another of Jesus's bold I am statements. Now, for those who haven't been with us through our series in John, maybe you're new to your Bible. When Jesus says, I am the door, in verse 7 and verse 9, he is declaring himself to be the God of the Old Testament. So away with the nonsense of the distinction between God of the Old Testament, God of the New, Jesus is saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. Where the God who is revealed in the pages of the Old Testament revealed himself as the I am. Jesus is clearly self-identifying in verses 7 and 9. Here now, the third I am statement in the Gospel of John. He told us in chapter 6, he's the bread of life. In chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Here in chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. Again, in chapter 10, you see in verses 11 to 14, I am the good shepherd. He'll tell us in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the, and the life. He'll tell us in 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 15, the seventh I am, I am the true vine. So when Jesus says in verses 7 and 9, I am the door. Friends, he is declaring that he and he alone is the exclusive access to the Father's pasture. Nothing else and no one else can provide access for men to God. If you do not enter a relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus, you will never enter such a relationship. He is the, definite article, door. And there are not two doors into God's pasture. So if any of you kids were at our Back Air Bible Clubs over the last couple of weeks, those of you who were at uh, Pastor Brian's house when Miss Angie gave the lesson, you may remember that she was teaching from God's Word that there is a wide path that leads to destruction, but there is a narrow gate, a small gate in a narrow way that leads to life. How small is the gate that leads to life? Jesus is saying it's his size. That's how small it is. 
It's Jesus-sized. But those who enter through Christ into God's green pasture find it's like Narnia's wardrobe. It looks like a little piece of furniture, but it opens into this blissful world of amazing wonder and real life with God beyond your wildest imagination. So, number one, Jesus is the door. There are differences between shepherds and thieves, and there are clear ways to spot God's sheep. But number two, we find in verse 10, Jesus is the life, L-I-F-E, the life. He is true life. Verse 10 may be familiar to you. Let your eyes fall on it again. John 10, 10, worthy of memorization, meditation, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, to the full, to the max, supremely. Jesus is the life. Well, you can see the distinctions in the verse between the thief and Jesus. A, the thief steals. B, the Savior satisfies. But as we look at the first part of that verse, the thief steals, do you see this threefold digression in the passage? Meaning it's going downhill. It starts bad and it gets worse. Do you see the digression? It's not just a, it's not just a list of random words. They're in an order of decay and damnation. This is the devil's business with you, friends. He's looking to open new franchises today on a new corner of your heart. He's coming for you. I I do think the New American Commentary is accurate when it's saying the thief here is not just the devil. It's certainly him. But it's every evil opponent of Jesus. That thief Anything that wants to take away the supremacy of Jesus in your affection and as the object of your faith, that is a thief. Look at the digression. The thief wants to steal, kill, destroy. The blanks on your handout are verse 10, the thief works to steal your life until you die. He wants to kill your life when you die. And he wants to destroy your life after you die. That's the digression. Until you die, he wants to take from you. When you die, he wants to laugh at you. And after you die, he wants to damn you, destroy you with himself. This threefold is meant to trigger for us, I believe, a common pattern in Scripture. It's all over the place, Old and New Testament. When the biblical authors want to lay emphasis on a truth, they oftentimes do it in threefold enumeration. Faith, hope, love, way, truth, life, ask, seek, knock, holy, holy, holy. Jesus is telling us by way of emphasis, anything that seeks to deter your affection for Jesus and your trust in Him as your good shepherd and your access through Him as the door into the life of God, anything that seeks to take away that affection for Christ in your life is the thief's work. 
to steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy you. But the Savior, verse 10, he doesn't steal, he satisfies. This is another one worthy of many, many sermons just on this one little phrase. I came that they may have life, and your translation may put it this way, have it abundantly. Some say have it to the full. Others render have it to the max, the maximum. In verse 10, Jesus gives life to the dead. That's the fill in the blank under B. And also, verse 10, Jesus fills life for eternity. So he gives life to the dead and he fills life for eternity. Do you see the difference? This is a contrast. The thief is trying to disintegrate you your entire life until he kills you. And then he wants to damn you. But on the other hand, Jesus came that you may have life, not you already have it. If you already have life, he doesn't need to come to give it to you. But I came, I came, I came all the way from the portals of eternity. I dismounted the throne of glory. I came from eternity past. I stood up off of my heavenly throne and I came here on mission to give dead people life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. It's like the difference between a rock and a living creature. You exist, but you don't live. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, according to the Bible, until Jesus touches you with the supernatural power of his life-giving gospel accomplishment. He came to give life to the dead after you're born. And two, he fills life for eternity. That's that word, abundantly. We've said it before here from this pulpit, and we're going to say it again, so help us, God. I've never met a person who regrets giving their life to Jesus, but I've met a lot of people who regret that they didn't. I've never met a person who looks back on Jesus and says, he wasn't worth it. No matter what pathway he calls you to walk and what pastures he calls you to follow him into, But on the other hand, I've heard time and time again people's testimony that sounds so much like people in Scripture. To live is Christ. He's what life is all about. I've heard so many people testify like Galatians 2. I died and Christ now lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me abundant life. I've heard time and again the testimony of Colossians in people's own words. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, when Christ, Christ, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you'll be revealed with Him in glory. When John 10 says, the Lord Jesus speaking, I came to give you life and I came to be your life. I came to be your full satisfying life. I'm telling you, sin over promises and under delivers. And you all know it. It comes at you with its shiny trinkets and with its deceptive bait. But when you bite the lure, you feel miserable. And then sin says to you, but if you'll get a little more of it, you'll finally be full. But those precious few, that remnant of humanity 
who has tasted the all-satisfying grace of the Lord Jesus knows that when you intake Christ by faith, you're both satisfied and your appetite is enlarged for more of Him. And then you taste Him again. And no one, not one, not one person who has ever by faith laid hold of Jesus has come up from that well and said He doesn't satisfy. The thing sin promises, it can never deliver. But Christ and Christ alone gives you abundant life full, satisfying life for time and for eternity. That leads us to number three. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the life. In verses 11 to 16, Jesus is the good shepherd. I told you this is the meat of the meat. I've taken our sermon title from verses 11 and 14 where Jesus declares the fourth I am statement in John's gospel, I am the good shepherd. There are three things I'd like for us to consider from verses 11 to 16. It's so deep and so powerful in the immediate context, that whole shepherd analogy, and I told you about Jesus' world where people would see sheep all over the streets and all over the alleyways and byways and out in the pastures and on the hills. And when Jesus was born, the shepherds are watching their flock by night. Yes, of course they were because there's sheep everywhere. But not only in its immediate context, in its broader biblical context, people knew what Jesus was saying. I'm the good shepherd. Seventy humans taken in a supernatural intervention by God's doing alone through Joseph being raised up to power in Egypt. Seventy humans being brought down to Egypt so that Israel wouldn't die in the famine. I'm the good shepherd leading them through 40 years in a desert, food every single day on the ground, water flowing constantly from a rock. I'm the good shepherd. Taking them into the promised land, conquering kingdoms, tearing down walls. I'm the good shepherd. In its immediate context, it's beautiful, but in its broad biblical context, you get to the book of Revelation, and like a shepherd, he will lead them by the waters. I'm the good shepherd. You must know him, and you must know who they are who are not him. That's verses 12 and 13. There are two marks of a hired hand. How do you know someone is not the Savior, not the one you must follow, a hireling? Number one, verse 12, a hireling flees when he sees a wolf coming. That's your twelfth fill in the blank. (laughs) A hireling flees when he sees a wolf coming. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. What a coward. The wolf snatches them, verse 12 says, and scatters them. Sheep left unprotected is a sure mark that they're being led by a hireling. But second mark of a hired hand, not an owner of the sheep, is verse 13. A hireling is not concerned, that's your fill in the blank, not concerned about the sheep. Look at verse 13. Why does he flee when he sees the wolf coming? He flees, Jesus said, because he is a hired hand and not 
concerned about the sheep. Several translations say, does not care for the sheep. These people knew what Jesus was saying. These are Bible people that Jesus is talking to. They knew that he was hearkening back to prophecies like Zechariah chapter 11, when God predicted that his remedial judgment would fall upon Israel. And one of the distinctive marks of God judging his rebellious people would be Zechariah 11. God said, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing. He will not seek the scattered. He will not heal the broken or sustain one who is standing. He will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to that worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. Who leaves the flock. Woe to that worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. So two marks of a hired hand is they flee when they see a wolf. And they do that because they don't care. They, they are not concerned, verse 13, about the sheep. But when I said this is the meat of the meat, I meant B. Verses 14 to 16. Eight marks of the good shepherd. Number one, verse 14 and 15. The good shepherd knows his sheep and ensures that his sheep know him. Have you meditated on verse 14 before? Has it sent you into the third heaven in delighted praise? I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Now let your eyes fall on 15. Even as, just as, exactly like the Father knows me and I know the Father. I believe that's where the conclusion of the comment goes. And next, and I lay my life down for the sheep. This is a remarkable claim of knowledge of the shepherd toward his flock and of his flock toward the shepherd. Jesus is not simply asserting he knows them and they know him. I mentioned that common sheepfold and every day the shepherds would come in through the gate and the gatekeeper whom they had paid, they would get their flock and lead them out. How would they get their flock out of all those dozens of sheep and sequester them to follow them. They would call them by name. And the sheep in that big milieu of other sheep detected their shepherd's voice and would come to him and he would lead them out and only his subset of that big group of sheep would follow him out. And Jesus is saying, I know my own and they know me. But he's not just saying general knowledge, you see it in verse 15. Do you see it in verse 15? Even as Jesus is asserting as a fact the experiential knowledge that His Father has of Him and He has of His Father is the flavor of the experiential knowledge that He and His sheep have of one another. So I just want to ask you today, Do you know Jesus? Like, know Him. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Is He somebody with whom you converse and commune and follow and talk with and learn from? The inter-Trinitarian relationship of tender love and affection 
between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father is the ground of the intimate relationship that Christ has with his people in this verse. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. The way God the Father knows God the Son is the way God's people know his Son. Not to the same degree. Never for all eternity as exhaustively, which makes heaven heaven. We will ever increase in our experiential knowledge of our Savior and of the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We will never cease growing. Our thimble will always be full and it will ever expand as we continue to enjoy for all of eternity God's fullness for us in Christ. And though we don't know Him as much as the Father knows Him, we do know Him like the Father knows Him. It's the same love. It's the same knowledge. That's what Jesus is saying. God doesn't call us to be an outside observer to His agape love, but rather to be enveloped in the delight of God, with God, in God, forever as His people. That's verse 14 and 15. That's astonishing. Number two, marks of the good shepherd. He stays with His sheep in time of danger. You can see in verse 12 that when the hired hand sees the wolf coming, look at verse 12, he leaves the sheep. But the good shepherd, number two, stays with his sheep in time of danger. I don't know if you've thought about this. If you've been around Grace Church for a long time, I know you've thought about it if you were here on a particular Sunday because we preached a whole sermon on Hebrews 2.18. Many Christians wrongly presume that when we're heavily tempted by sin, Jesus is further away. Hebrews 2.18 teaches the opposite. That if it's possible for Him to get closer to you, Hebrews 2.18, because He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. When Jesus sees a wolf coming after you, he doesn't step back. He rushes in. He's closer to you in temptation than you are. He's definitely closer than the temptation is. That's why 1 Corinthians 10 exists. Let no one say when he's tempted that, that you're in such an extreme circumstance that nobody else can understand it. Yes, we can. We're all tempted just like you are. Everybody has to say no to sin. Everybody has to say yes to Jesus. But praise God, 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. And with the temptation, will provide the way, definite article, the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. He gets close to his sheep when they're in danger. That's the mark of our good shepherd. Number three, the good shepherd gathers his sheep. This is verse 12. The hireling leaves the sheep when he sees the wolf. The wolf snatches them and, look at the end of verse 12, scatters them. He doesn't let his sheep get scattered. The Bible tells us, we don't like to think of actual names and faces and people the way the Bible talks about them sometimes, but the, the Bible tells us. One main reason, not the only reason, not every single situation, not every single person. I'm not saying that. 
one of the main reasons people leave churches and just drift out there in churchless Christianity, they went out from us because they were not of us, 1 John. Do you see what the good shepherd does? He goes and gets that sheep and that sheep and that sheep and that sheep, and he, verse 12's them, gathers them into an ecclesia, an assembly, a congregation, a church. Number four, the good shepherd never loses one sheep. The good shepherd never loses one sheep. Do you see verse 16? I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. Who? Verse 16. Other sheep who are not of this fold. Jesus is saying, I'm the only shepherd there is to bring people to God. And I have some other people with my laser focus of love already fixed on them, and I'm going to go get them. Number five, the good shepherd unites his sheep to himself and to one another. Look at verse 16. This is so gloriously good. They will become one flock with one shepherd. All the sheep that belong to the same shepherd are happy to be part of his flock. Number six, the good shepherd owns his sheep. O-W-N-S. He purchases them. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he who is not the owner of the sheep sees a wolf coming and flees. By way of inference, you know what Jesus is saying. My sheep are mine because I bought them. 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Peter, you weren't redeemed, you weren't paid for with perishable things like silver and gold. Just silver? Just gold? Just diamonds? Just trash like that? No, you weren't paid for with worthless stuff like gold. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. Number seven, the good shepherd loves his sheep. Verse 13, he flees because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. The implication is there is a shepherd who is concerned. There is one who does care. There is one who does love. And number eight, the ground of it all, the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. Now, here's an amazing thing. Not one sheep had any possibility of being saved except that the shepherd, could you, can you carry the metaphor and just imagine this happening? A little flock of sheep on the precipice of perishing, and the shepherd goes and corrals them all, puts them in safe fold, and goes in their stead to die for them. You can't even, the metaphor makes no sense. We don't know shepherds like that. Oh, yes, we do. Amazing love, how can it be 
I've never heard of this before. There's not a kingdom in the history of the world where this has ever happened. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my king, would die for me? I can read you books all day long about kings who required the subjects to die for them. I don't know any stories of any king who gets off their throne and goes and dies for the people. Oh, yes, I do. He lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus died for you because he's a lot more knowledgeable than you are. And he knew there was no other way for you to be saved than for the shepherd to die in your stead. If there was another way, I assure you God would have come up with a better plan than his son being mutilated for your redemption. But he knew there's no other way for the justice of God to be satisfied and for the sin of your soul to be paid for adequately than for the Lord Jesus, both God and man, to die in your place. That leads us to the last part of the meat. And then the, third, the fourth thing is just the conclusion. C, the eternal acceptance and authority of the Good Shepherd, his total delight for all eternity, and his dominion. Look at verse 17 and 18. In these verses, we have something so amazing that I had to put a complex chart on the back of your handout. Verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. I'll get to that chart in just a second. A couple of comments first. Notice verse 17 has what looks like a conditional clause. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again? It is a condition. It's just not the kind of condition it may initially appear to be. It's certainly a cause for the Father's delight in the Son, His love to the Son. But it is not a cause for the Son to be loved. It is rather from His being the object of the Father's eternal love. Let me say it another way. Verse 17 is a magnificent reason for the Father's loving delight in His Son, not the ground for why the Father rejoices in the Son. Let me let D.A. Carson help. It is not that the Father withholds His love until Jesus agrees to give up His life on the cross and rise again. Rather, the love of the Father for the Son is eternally linked with the unqualified obedience of the Son to the Father, His utter dependence upon the Father, culminating in this greatest act of obedience now just before Him, a willingness to bear the shame and ignominy of Golgotha, the isolation and rejection of death, the sin and curse reserved for the Lamb of God. Let me just put that in as simple terms as I can. In eternity past, the Father delighting in His Son and the power of the Holy Spirit said something like this, according to Isaiah 53.10, to his son. It will please me if you will willingly be sent as a vicarious substitute for image bearers who we will create, who will rebel against us, 
But if you will go and suffer the punishment for their sins to show the glory of our grace in saving sinners, that will bring me pleasure. And it's as if the Son said to the Father, if it will please you to save sinners at the expense of the sacrifice of myself, then by all means, be pleased. And verse 17 is telling us something amazing. The Father loves the Son on the basis of that willing pleasure to be sacrificed for us. If you fix your eyes on verse 18, I'm persuaded that it's the central verse in John's Gospel. Not just geographically, but theologically, it is John's principal point. Verse 18, no one has taken his life from him, but he lays it down on his own initiative. He has all the authority to give his life. He has all the authority to raise his life. And this commandment he received from his father, it's a picture of the son's voluntary subordination to his father's command, but also his absolute dominion and authority over all things, including death. Nobody killed Jesus, ultimately speaking. He gave his life. He laid his life down. He let them kill him. And the reason he didn't stay dead is because he has authority over death to take up his life again. I won't detail it, but this is uh, perhaps intriguing homework for some of you. On the back of your handout, you'll see the arrow falls right at verse 18. Chapter 10, verse 18a, verse 18b, what you have there is called a chiasm. It's the entire Gospel of John. You could look at A at the top and A prime at the bottom. You can see A, one, two, three, and four. A prime at the bottom, one, two, three, and four. And you can see verse references beside it. If you look at the beginning of John and end of John, you'll find the same words. And this chart shows you that. If you look at the next portions, you'll find the same words. And the next, and the next, and the next, until you get to the middle. And in a chiastic structure, most people believe that the main point is in the middle. And you can just go look at that for yourself and see if you can find with the Scripture references the same words in both of those places which I think is a fingerprint of the Holy Spirit if it lines up that way. I don't think John set out to write it like that. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired it, and here's one of his fingerprints. But right in the middle, what do you get? Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative, and I'm going to take it up again. I have the authority to do that, and this is exactly what the Father commanded me to do. The harmony of the Trinity and the all authority of the Son of God in the redemption of sinners like you and me. This is one of the glorious marks of the good shepherd. Well, I asked you at the very beginning, this is verses 19 and 21, number four. What kind of comments would I have to tell you that Jesus said for you to conclude on the spot that you should never listen to him again? If I told you that Jesus said something and I faithfully reported it and didn't mix it with any error or interpretation of my own, this is what he said, what of his comments would lead you to conclude that he's a demon-possessed madman? I ask that question because of where verses 19 to 21 go. 
A, some commit the unpardonable sin, and B, others keep Jesus at arm's length. But they both suffer the same fate. The reason I call it the unpardonable sin, some of you have wondered before, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Jesus speaks of a sin that cannot be forgiven. Verses 19 and 20, I believe, are referring to such a sin. A division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Why would I call that the unpardonable sin? Because this is exactly what Jesus said, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Mark 3, Jesus said, truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the Son of Man, Son of Men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, utter. So, let me speak, Jordan. <laughs> all that can be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Why did you say that, Jesus? Thank you, Mark. Mark 3.30. Because they were saying Jesus has an unclean spirit. That's why he said the unpardonable sin passage. Do you see the connection that I'm trying to make? John chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Jesus said, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He said that because they were saying, you have an unclean spirit. John 10, 19, and 20, many were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? If you attribute to Satan the works and teachings of Jesus, you have blasphemed against the Spirit because the Spirit's ministry is to exalt the person and work of Christ. That's his job. That's his vocation. So if you don't exalt the person and work of Jesus, and you say he gets his power some other way, then by being the ambassador that God sent, who is God himself, who died for our sins and rose again, if you won't affirm that, yes, you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. And that sin cannot be forgiven. Because to be forgiven, you must have faith in the name and the work of Jesus. The passage ends in verse 21, not with people blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, but by keeping him at arm's length, safe distance. They're not persuaded. They're not antagonistic totally, but they're not persuaded. Verse 21, these are not the sayings of a demon-possessed man. A demon-possessed person can't open the eyes of the blind, can he? See, this is in context of John 9, where Jesus healed the man born blind, made the spittle, put it in his eyes, he washed, he could see again. But these people just had idle contemplations. They had seen the works of Jesus, the man born blind who was healed, saw that with their own eyes. They heard the teaching of Jesus, two of the seven I am statements. Maybe he's not, maybe, maybe he's not, I don't know, I don't, I mean, maybe he's not demon possessed. I mean, he did, he did do some. He did some pretty impressive things. I mean, I don't know. And I'm telling you today, if you're not antagonistic to Jesus, a blasphemer against the Holy Spirit, he's demon-possessed, and you're in the, I don't know, I just, I'm just not persuaded, you suffer the same fate. Why did John write this passage? Why did he write it? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 20, 30, and 31, and believing, faithing, trusting, entrusting yourself to Him, you would have life in His name. That's why He wrote it. 
Well, one of the people who was standing there that day, whose name is not mentioned in the passage, is the infamous apostle Peter, who just a few chapters from now is going to deny Jesus three times. I don't know him. I do not know the man. Cursing and swearing, I don't know him. As Jesus is being led to his death, Peter does realize by the grace of the Holy Spirit true conviction of sin. He's broken over his denial of Christ. He's weeping. He's in a boat fishing. Jesus rises from the dead, shows up on the shore of the sea where Peter's out in the boat fishing, starts cooking breakfast for Peter. They get close enough to the shore for Peter to recognize it's Jesus. He jumps out of the boat. He swims to Jesus. He embraces him. And Jesus is restoring Peter by a charcoal fire, which is exactly where Peter had denied him just a few chapters earlier. And the risen Jesus, the risen, the risen Jesus, you with me? This is where I'm closing on purpose. Finished cooking breakfast and said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know, you know I love you. Jesus said, tend my lamb. He said again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Why three times? Because three denials, total restoration, complete forgiveness, absolute reunification with God, koinonia, no friction between you and God, all sin dealt with, three denials, Three restorations. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. So what does Jesus say now that you're restored? Tend my sheep. Guess what people who follow the good shepherd do? They take really, really good care of all of his other sheep. That's what they do. Because now the way he shepherds is not John 10. It's the local church. Everybody filled with the Spirit of Christ trying to take care of all those others who are filled with the Spirit of Christ as we seek together to follow the Good Shepherd. Who are you taking care of? Who are you helping? Who are you praying for? Who are you walking with? Who are you warning of dangers? Who are you coming alongside? Who are you going in front of? Who are you burdened for? Who are you nurturing? Who are you rejoicing with? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Take care of my lambs. Do you love me? Lord, you know, you know I love you. Tend my flock. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. There's so much in it. We feel embarrassed by how little we get from such a rich reservoir. So just remind us, we pray as we sing in closing, of how much you love us. Because we trust that if we live under the waterfall of your love, we'll love you back. And part of that will be manifested in, part of that love, no doubt about it, Jesus said it to Peter, taking care of your sheep. Thank you for being the good shepherd. We want to follow you. 
as one flock with one shepherd. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.